Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Black Menaces Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Bird. I'm here with my co-host. Rachel Weaver. We are happy to be back with you guys this week. Absolutely. And this week on the show, we have uh, some amazing guests. We've got Maleni and Gil, who are here to share their experiences as immigrants to the United States. So we're looking forward to hearing a little bit more about them. But before uh, we we learn from them, we're going to hear from Rachel with her Menace Movement. Okay. I'm super excited for our minutes moment today. Um, I'm covering someone who uh, you guys probably have heard of. Her name is Angela Rye. I don't know if you guys uh, know who she is or have seen her. She's kind of this um, commentator or was on CNN until 2020. And she's very spunky, very witty. Um, I've just seen her in funny clips, uh, basically going at it and, um, you know, on some political commentating things and uh, those people always are impressive to me. So I wanted to know more about her and what led her to, how did you get on CNN to be able to do something like this? Um, anyway, so let, a little bit about her. She was born um, in, on October 26th in 1978 in Seattle, Washington, to um, an African-American family, which is interesting considering that time frame. Not that many Black people lived in C- still don't live in Seattle, and especially at that time. Mm-hmm. So, that's, that kind of stood out to me, like, wow, your whole Black family's in Seattle. Um, anyway, so her father, Eddie Rye Jr., uh, is a community activist and entrepreneur, and her mother, Andrea Rye, is a former college administrator. So she came from parents who you know, are pretty well-educated and obviously um, a parent who was inspiring activism. Growing up, she attended an all-girls high school um, called Holy Names Academy in Seattle, and then she eventually... Um, got her bachelor's degree from Washington University, and then she earned her law degree from uh, the Seattle University of Law School. Um, And then she started involving herself in activism while at college. Um, And then while she was in school, she served as the Western Regional Director for the National Black Law Student Association in 2004. And then she started her political advocacy career in 2005 when she started working with the National Association for Equal Opportunity in Higher Education, which basically is an association of of 120 historically Black colleges and universities in the United States. Um, And this is when she served as a coordinator for the advocacy and legislative affairs, um, which is kind of cool. And then... After that, in 2006, when she moved, she eventually moved to Washington, D.C., she co-founded IMPACT, which is I-M-P-A-C-T, like um, like all standing by themselves, um, the, the, the letters, um, which was an organization for youth and young professionals um, and activism. And so she had a very busy career. Each year she was doing something new. And then in 2007, she was appointed um, as a senior advisor to the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Homeland Security. Then in 2011, she served as an executive director 
and general counsel for the Congressional Black Caucus. In 2013, she took over as the principal and CEO of Impact Strategies. Um, and then in 2017, she officially left Impact to establish her own um, corporation and called Angela Rye Incorporated, um, which was a legal advocacy organization. And then later that year, she was featured on The Breakfast Club, which is like this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She was featured mm -hmm. on The Breakfast Club, which if anyone knows what that is, it's a, how would you describe that, Nate? It's like a social, I don't know. They talk about a lot of things on that podcast. Uh, they yeah. do a lot of politics, though, as well. Um, it's like a pop culture pod, or like a pop yeah. culture radio show. Yeah. Um, but because it's it's by Black people, a lot of issues that affect the Black community, there were political issues that um, were mentioned on there. And so that's where she was a guest. And then that eventually led to her in 2018 becoming a political commentator on CNN, which again, which is where I was introduced to her. And also in 2019, she was awarded an honorary doctorate by Wiley University. In 2020, she started her own podcast to discuss issues of race, culture, and politics. Um, and then her contract with CNN ended in 2020. Um, and she's appeared on lots of other platforms like BET, Huffington Post Live, um, as well as ESPN as a special correspondent um, about Black History Month. And uh, something that I thought was interesting, I said, I wonder what her speaking fee is because of all that she's been involved in. And so her speaking fee can range from $25,000 to $50,000. Um, nice. which is not, which is pretty decent because Obama's is like a million or 2 million or something like that. <laughs> I would imagine so. Yeah. <laughs> that, that would be my dream to hear from him, but I don't know any organization that would be able to pay that. But, um, yeah, that's a little bit about her. And, uh, now she's kind of just doing her, her own thing on her own podcast. And I don't know, I just always found her words very profound and how she would stand up to, you know, a lot of, uh, what's the word? Ignorant people, I'll say, um, when she was commentating on CNN. So I just always think it's interesting people's past that lead them to be a commentator at that level. And uh, I recommend you going to check her out because she's definitely a menace in um, the way that she stands up for uh, black and brown communities and the way she's advocated for the issues that impact our community and obviously through her legal work as well. And so it's cool how she went from law school, um, which she could have taken a traditional route into politics, but she took a more, you know, uh, I'd say Gen Z approach to just kind of speaking out and, and using her, um, the way she's able to articulate and grab people's attention to uh, discuss issues that are important. So maybe maybe some of us could take that route one day too. Won't be me, but maybe uh, some of the other black menaces could do something like that. Uh, so that, that's our menace moment today. Love that, love that, love that. Cool. Well, with that, Melanie and Gil, we want to just start talking with y'all. Um, so just briefly kind of tell us a little bit about where you're from um, and then just tell us a little bit about yourselves and what you're doing. You want to start? Well, so my name is Melanie and I was born in Mexico. Um, my family moved out here to the United States when I was two years old. So I don't, I sadly don't remember a lot about Mexico. I haven't been back since. Um, we moved to California, so say I was born in uh, born in Mexico, but raised in Oakland, which anyone you meet from the Bay is just super proud to be from the Bay. Um, then for college, I moved out to Utah to go to school at BYU, and I've been here since. Nice. Uh, well, I'm Gil. I was born and raised. I was born in Villa Corona, Jalisco, Mexico. I was moved to the United States here in Utah. 
when I was th about three years old, and I was pretty much just raised here my entire life in Utah County, in Mormonism. Even though my family never was, I was just raised in this culture, and yeah, I grew up here now in Mexico for me. It's just a vacation spot. So what was it that, that brought your family to Utah since you, since you weren't Mormon? Uh, my uncle used to work at a cherry field, and he said that there was a lot of work uh, in the fields of cherry picking and apple picking and just the fields. And my, you know, as people who wanted to migrate to the United States, my mom and dad saw that as a really big opportunity to know that there was stable work and a lot of work, which meant a lot of money. Uh, so that's what brought my family to Utah was all the fields. Okay, gotcha. And I feel like that's not something that you like imagine Utah to have much of. Um, maybe it's because I haven't been to as much of Utah, but I feel like I've seen Southern Utah, which there's not a lot of fields down there. And then it seems like there's not a lot in Provo, but um, I guess it just really depends on where you are. But that's interesting to to kind of know and understand a little bit more. Um, so if you could both just kind of tell me like, what would be different about um, growing up in the United States if you are not born here or if, um, or if your parents are not born here, like what's different about the average like immigrant or child of immigrant experience that maybe someone um, like born in the U.S. wouldn't understand? It's a big question. I think there's a lot. I think our entire lives are, well, I don't want to speak too much for you, but just every aspect of it is different, just even from starting with like language barriers. Um, I remember as early as four years old, so like beginning stages of talking, remember having to like advocate for my family and remembering like having to learn like bus systems at that point. My mom and dad joke around that like at that age, I knew everything that would be on TV and I knew when the bus would stop every time. And like you were just so intelligent. And I'm like, well, I was surviving. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you had to, right. I had to understand that. So um, just being like hyper aware of your surroundings and knowing that like you aren't from here. I even remember being younger and like, my parents telling me, hey, if we go to this event and anyone asks you where you're from, just be like, I'm from Oakland. So there's no questions asked. But even with that like answer, it's it's still not enough. So I would say just like what people don't think about as like basic life, daily life routines, they're not the same for a lot of us. But I don't know what you would add to that. No, yeah, it's definitely a lot. Like I feel like a lot of the Latinos have the same story where it's like at a young age, you know, with parents who didn't know the English language that weren't, you know, educated or, you know, left, you know, left Mexico when they were like in sixth grade to build a family and to just come to the United States to work. They don't have that education and they don't have the language. Yeah. So in elementary, I was translating like legal documents and like doctor notes. And I would, parents would get mad if I didn't know a specific word because it'd be like, well, this is why we brought you here. Why, how do you not know this word? There's so, like this funny saying, they'll be like, I'll translate it, but it's like, ¿Para qué vas a la escuela? meaning like, then why do you go to school? Yeah. They're like, oh, well, you know, good question. <laughs> it's it's a lot of pressure, I think, from a young age. Being yeah, able also to like, I I'm, I might not know this because I'm I'm a, I'm a like sixth grade, so I shouldn't know this word right now. Maybe I don't know this because it's not in my vocabulary yet. Dang. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because I think that we joke about it as like a, a community being like, yeah, like so much was expected from us. But I have seen a lot of like of a shift in the Latino community lately where they're like, oh, this isn't actually because I was super smart or I can read someone's mind. It's like 
yeah, you were being taught how to survive in a place that ultimately wasn't created for you. And you had to learn how to be safe. So I think that was the hardest part. Understanding now as an adult, like I have a lot of um, sympathy for younger me being like, yeah, you you had to do these things. And of course, there's no anger towards my parents because I think that they do have to rely on us because um, it's easier for us to learn a language at that age than it is for them when they started to. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. And you mentioned having to kind of advocate for your family a little bit. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what you meant by that? Yeah, um, there's a few situations I can think about that come up with that. But even as simple as like going to school, like, you know, parent or parent nights or open house or whatever they're called. I remember, um, I think it was like first, second grade, my mom being like, okay. And I think about it. Like I went to a school that was predominantly black and brown, but there's still that language barrier. So I remember my mom walking into the school and be like, hey, like just fake it till you make it. And so she would talk to the teacher. The teacher was speaking to her. She would nod her head and she'd look at me and I'd be like, here's the key word of what she was telling you. So like, that's a, a simple way, but it was almost like, yeah, my mom knows what you're talking about. Like, it's fine. Or even, um, I brought this up earlier, but we would take the bus a lot of the time because when we got here and I can go in depth into this a little later, but we lived with my entire family in like a three bedroom apartment. And what I mean entire family, it's like 20 plus people. And wow. so- my dad saved up enough money to buy a car. And so he would go to work with the car. And my mom's like, I can't keep you guys in the house all day. So we would take the bus everywhere and advocating in that sense would be like, okay, how much is it? Like being four years old, being like, how much is it for the bus? And I remember my mom telling me to count our quarters. So just being able to speak with my parents and like interact in that sense of like, this is what they're saying. And my mom would be like, okay, now I know what that means. So a lot of that. Yeah. And even like when, you would go to a restaurant, like a fast food restaurant, they yes. get the hamburger wrong. Like you would have to be the one to be like, hey, this is wrong. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. small stuff like that. Again, like back to your question where it's like, what are some things people don't expect? I think those are the things that um, even now as an adult, I look into it and I'm just like, wow, like I feel proud of myself for being able to go into this doctor's appointment by myself and like speak because that's something yeah. that is taught as like, you're nervous about it just because you're like, what if they don't understand what I'm trying to tell them, even though I speak fluently or just like another one that you'll hear a lot in, in the Latino community. It's when people come up to you and they're like, wow, you speak Spanish so fluently. You're like, we learned to talk at the same time. So I hope so. <laughs> oh, Spanish, sorry, English. <laughs> Back to that. So. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And I mean, that's, that's like a level of maturity that that you don't normally expect from a child. You said four years old, like learning how to count money, count quarters. Like that's not something that I learned probably till, you know, kindergarten, first grade. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's like a big responsibility to take on, kind of being like a bridge, almost like a bridge between two worlds, really, um, yeah. in like two different cultures. So, yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, what would you say were some like defining moments of your childhood? Like what were times where you realized like, oh, you know, things are different or I, I am different or, um, like my experience is not the same as others. What were some defining moments from from your childhood? I think something that really stood out to me was uh, when it would be like in school, they would have like projects with your parents uh, or like science fair projects or like take your child to work day, for example. You would come back the next weekend and or like the next day to school and you'd hear about, oh, like what did you guys do? and 
little Miss Kayla would stand up and be like, oh, like my mom took me to her office where she worked with the doctor and I saw this, I got to put a Band-Aid on. Or it's like, oh, my dad works at this office and he works with money or at a bank. And my story, I couldn't tell a story. I would have to come up with one because my mom couldn't walk me into the kitchen of McDonald's or like my dad couldn't take me to a construction site mm. to go, you know, figure out what he does for a day because that's the type of work that was available at that time. So mm. I wasn't never really, never had the same stories as those other kids. Mm. I'm trying to think. Um, I think that a specific moment I remember, um, my mom specifically was the type of mom who wanted me to get involved in everything I could just to get started on just like connections, I guess. But um, she put me into the Girl Scouts. And I remember that they would ask us to like do these big activities with them. And they would say, okay, you're going to bring your mom or your dad or whoever you have to like come to this activity and kind of walk you through it. And like, this is something they should know, like hiking or like having like a merit badge in this or different things like that. And I remember my mom and dad being like, okay, like let's figure it out. And it took that extra step of like, oh, you don't know how to do this. Like we're doing it together. Or I even remember going to activities with them and they'd be like, okay, for this summer, we're going to go camping in this part of California or even going to like a different state. And remembering my mom and dad being like, oh, actually she won't be doing that just because you know, legal reasons. And also just, it was so new to them. They're like, we don't trust that. Mm -hmm. So just having those opportunities and it's not that they didn't want me to have them. It was more so just like, we don't know what that's like and we don't want mm -hmm. to anything of sending you out there. So yeah. That makes even, sense. yeah. So that's it. I mean, that makes sense. Just like your, I mean, your parents aren't like fearing it because they don't like trust people, but they want to protect you. They want to protect themselves, protect their family and keep you guys safe. And and that's a different level of, I mean, they haven't experienced certain things in this, in this country. How could they trust it or understand it themselves? So it makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and I want to get a little bit more into the differences in you guys' experience, just because you both kind of grew up um, in different places, right? There's a lot of similarities just in the immigrant experience overall, but um, Melinda, you grew up in, you know, California, Oakland, around, I'm assuming, other people who are immigrants or other brown people. And Gil, growing up in Utah County, that's that's very different. And um, I'm just curious. <laughs> I'm just curious, like, what was that like? Um, you guys can share some ways that, I mean, as you've talked as friends or just knowing about your, your the differences from, from being here, what are maybe some unique parts about being um, an immigrant Gil here in Utah County and being non-LDS, right? Cause that's another layer of maybe exclusion or not being a part of the, the main group. And Melanie, what was that like maybe having, do you feel like you found other people who were immigrants and found like camaraderie in that? Or was that helpful in high school or growing up um, and younger, you know, as you became older? Um, and so I'm just curious if that was a part of either of your stories or if you found people as well, Gil, here who were um, also immigrants? Because I do know there is like a large immigrant population in Utah that's kind of like unexpected um, that people maybe aren't aware of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you want to start with that one? That was yeah. a lot. So answer that with however you want. Question. Yeah. So yeah, growing up here in Utah was definitely very difficult just because like everything I was taught and what I knew and was comfortable with was not accepted at all. Like my culture was not accepted. 
my family's worth ethic was not accepted. Mm. Religion was not accepted. It was just. I'm sorry. Could you go back? Could you just kind of elaborate? What do you mean that, that the work ethic wasn't accepted? Like the type of work that my parents would do was not the type mm. of work that was typically like an ideal job to have. Oh, or okay. even like, like not valued. I feel like that's always what I've seen. I don't want to, again, speak for what you're saying, but the yeah. work that. I feel like people who are immigrants do is just not valued in the same way, but it's just as important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like people working at McDonald's were typically like high school students, you know, mm -hmm. and my mom was a full grown up trying to raise three or four kids, you know, mm -hmm. out of this minimum wage paying job. Well, these high schoolers were just, you know, getting money to pay for clothes and stuff like that. Mm. It's kind of what I meant with like the work ethic and stuff like that. But growing up here, you know, I was I was pretty much the definition of a minority. You know, I wasn't, I was like one of the few brown kids in my school. It was just like me and my sisters, I remember. And growing up, I would learned English with the, with the rest of the group because, you know, I started in kindergarten. So everybody was learning what a wheel was or what a triangle was or what two plus mm -hmm. two. So it made it more difficult. I mean, more easy to learn all that. Right. Um, everybody um finding the community the latino community was pretty easy but in not the best way because mm -hmm. they stuck all of the latinos in esl classes because mm -hmm. they under, they weren't at the same reading level as a you know as a person like a, as a white kid would just be at you know if you were in second grade you were expected to be a second grade or third grade reading level but because I was I was juggling between two languages, I right. was a bit more behind, yeah. and that's they would consider that a, a reason to either hold you back an entire grade or to put you in these special ed classes. So that's where I found most of my community was, unfortunately, in these like English learning classes. But that that made just made it stronger in a sense to like okay, I'm not the only one that's you know struggling with this. Mm. Just build more of a tight community. That's. So that that's interesting, though, that like something that I mean, that probably was isolating in certain ways. I don't know. You I, I'm curious, like, was that isolating? But then it sounds like you found um, a community amongst something that I felt like excluded you in a certain way. So what was. Yeah, I'm, I don't want to speak for that. So, yeah. So it would definitely be interesting because, like, for example, like, let's stick with the whole reading thing. Um, you had to be able to read, like, for example, when Dr. Seuss Day came along, you know, and you'd have to mm. bring your kids to read you books for Dr. Seuss books, which were like easy elementary school books. If you didn't know how to read those books, you just weren't going to attend that. And so I felt like it was just, they kind of did kind of isolate you because of a certain thing that you couldn't do. But little, like now, today now, there's a lot more resources. There's Latino teachers. There's people of color mm. in schools. There's people who are aware that, okay, you know, you just migrated from Mexico, left everything behind, your culture, your language, and everything, and now you're expected to learn all this. Now there's a different approach to it than there was back then. Back then, it was just like, if you don't know how to read, you're either, you know, mentally not okay, or you're just a slow person. And that's mm. how most Latinos were just kind of looked at because they weren't at the same language rate that other, these other white kids would be at. Mm. Right. Did you feel like that was perpetuated by the teachers or was that just kind of like 
was that just the culture of the school or did you feel like teachers treated you less than uh, like what kind of walk me through like what that was like do you feel like it was perpetuated by the teachers or were they just kind of like victims of circumstance I think they were just victims of circumstance because I'm not going to say I had terrible teachers throughout, during elementary school. Mm-hmm. I had teachers that really made a really big impact that, you know, they did change the way I viewed myself as well. Um, for example, like my full name is Gilberto, but a lot of these white teachers could not say my full name. So they'd be like, you know what, let's just call you Gil. And it's like, that's mm-hmm. with me. And I loved it. And so now everybody just kind of knows me as Gil. And I still use that. But I feel like it was more of the education system that was back then that was more that was just more directed towards english speakers mm. yes mm. so it was like the system of the school per se and like teachers can only do so much and um i mean it's interesting i, I don't know if a utah school system back when um i mean we were similar age like we're going through elementary school, have the resources to maybe support um, a student like you, right? Versus like Chicago public school system, not that they were the best, but I know that they, they were used to having students from different, I know that there were different um, programs and resources available because I saw it. Um, they were available to people and less isolating, like it was more like this is just every day for everyone. Like of course, we have people who speak different languages. And so I don't think that, I don't know if that was the vibe here in Utah. Yeah, it was very much the vibe here, honestly, because there wasn't a lot of resources back then. Mm. You know, you had a teacher who would say, oh, I served my mission in Mexico, so I know Spanish. Oh, wow. I, oh, I didn't even think about that. Wow. I yeah, forgot. That's, that's a lot of the teachers that were like, can't get it. Like you're trying to be Mexican passing, but... You're still a white lady, you know, you're still a teacher. I still, you know, instead of like, they would use like very like by the dictionary words. Like for example, like in my, in my, in my home, like we use lapicera or lapis and they would use like bigrafo. I'm like, what the hell is a And then fail you for saying that. You're like. Yeah. And so like the education system, I feel like was very like much like a checkbox. Like if you Mm. say it and we're able to say it fluently, they check you off. If not, they they downgrade. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. So, so with that, um, and this is so fascinating to me because like, I, I have not had a chance to, or growing up, I didn't have a chance to interact a lot with very many immigrant people. Um, and then like coming to college, I got the opportunity to talk with people a little bit more, but I've never really had a chance to just kind of like fully get, uh, fully understand the story. And so I'm learning more as I go on. I'm loving that, but I want to ask like, how have, how have you seen things evolve over the years? Like obviously, we're in a much different place than we were, you know, say 10 or 15 years ago. So um, how have you seen like the culture surrounding attitudes for immigration and awareness around immigration? How have you seen that change? So in the education system is what you're asking? Um, just in general, like throughout the country, like the political climate, um, like what, what kind of changes have you seen uh, towards immigrants and, and awareness and attitudes and things like that? Well, definitely something that has really changed is definitely the fact that there's more Latinos going and getting through college, getting the educations that they are wanting to achieve. And with that being said, there's also people who are activists for um, their culture and stuff like that. They don't want it to die down. They don't want it to be shut down or, you know, be it turn, have that volume turned down because of that's it not being 
what United States does. So I definitely do think that it's changed in that way. Also, there's a lot more resources. There's a lot more resources that are being thrown out there by Latino owned or brown owned communities to help each other. Or either, either if it's just because you're just getting here to the country or you've been here for years and are just trying to figure out how to navigate certain things like a checking account or your social security or your 401k, stuff that aren't normalized in Mexico. Yeah, I would agree. I think, yeah, I think that like what I like what McGill has been saying is that a lot of the changes or just any progress we've made has been because of the immigrant community. I don't necessarily think anything has changed from within inside the system, but like Gail was mentioning, like we're getting more immigrant Latinos or just in general, the immigrant community graduating college, like finding these resources for themselves and actually like finding our voice, I think is the biggest thing that I've seen as a change where even just like meeting Gail, we're like, oh, that happened to you, that happened to me too. And like now even doing this podcast, just like that connection and relation with other people who've had experiences like you and and seeing how they're not something that should be normal that it's it's actually messed up <laughs> and so um speaking up for ourselves has finally started to happen a lot more and and finding that support yeah i feel like our parents did the job they brought us here to yeah. this country and now we have our own voice and mm -hmm. we're here to stand up for what's right and stand up for our, what we believe is right and for our own culture so 100%. our parents did the labor job of it and now we're just here to make it count yeah like make their sacrifice count too yeah. i think that's a yeah. big um a big feeling we have within this community is like whatever sacrifice our family members have done like we want to make it count for them because just leaving your home completely and moving into a different not just a different state but a different country a new language a new system um navigating that for them was extremely difficult and in a way we are more privileged than them because we were able to grow up in it and still experience the hardships of it, but just being able to understand it more where we can make a safer place, even for our family members who, who started it off for us. I think that's the biggest change I've seen. Um, and just pushing anybody else to be like, Hey, like we're here and we're staying and, and we and, have a voice and we have a voice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And something I've even seen is just like awareness of issues surrounding immigration has like increased, um, which has also come with like the racialization of immigration as well over the years. Like that has been a problem uh, <laughs> just cause it's, it's just interesting the way it's been racialized um, on particular groups and just like hyper-selectivity, hypo-selectivity of immigration because it's really interesting to me that immigration has become only Latino facing issue. I don't know you guys' thoughts on this, but immigration is, there's a lot of ethnic groups, racial groups that immigrate to the United States. Um, and it's interesting to focus on the Latino community, definitely like one of the highest groups that have come to the United States in immigration. But um, something I studied in sociology was the amount of immigrants that have come to the United States from Central America, Latin American countries is actually at the all time low. Um, just in recent years, because now there's like first, second, third, fourth generation of Latino and Hispanic people in the United States. Um, and now in the recent years, it's been um, actually people from like African countries that are the highest amount of people that have been immigrating to the United States. And so um, I don't know why I'm saying this. I'm just saying it's been interesting. That's one of the things that I've noticed is how it's been racialized. And 
I don't I know if you guys have any thoughts on that as well. I feel like that mostly comes down to the Trump presidency, in my opinion, mm. just because mm. when President Trump said, you know, when you think of rapists, when you think of drug cartels, mm. when you think of uh illegal immigrants, he would always put Mexico as the, the picture face of all that crime. So I feel like that stems from the Trump presidency, especially, maybe it didn't before, but now it's just more magnified. Because, yeah. I mean, this these were words that were portrayed on thousands of televisions over different media, yeah. like social medias and stuff yeah. like that. So I feel like that's where that kind of stems is from the Trump presidency thinking like, you think of an illegal immigrant, Mexico. You think of a rapist, Mexico. You know, mm-hmm. that's just where that, I feel like it's stuff. It's very connected okay. to that, yeah. 100%. No, I agree with you. I think I saw this TikTok that was talking about how the Trump presidency created like a, um, there used to be like th- three or four types of Republicans. And this created like a separate category, a new category of um, Republicans who were just racist. And, you know, maybe we're feeling like, oh, we're progressing. I don't feel like I can be that person. And Trump gave those people a platform. I think that people might have thought that or felt that way. And he just kind of, uh, in a bad way, said what other people were thinking in the worst way, right? Like other people might have had those sentiments, um, but feeling like they had political backing and a president at that who agreed with them um, definitely made the already racialized issue of immigration, excuse me, even worse than it already was. So I, I'm 100% with y'all on that. For sure. Yeah, so a question kind of going off of what Rachel was saying, as, uh, you know, during the Trump presidency, as things became increasingly polarized, like leading up to his his election, um, what were kind of your sentiments? And fun fact for our listeners, Maleni and I actually served in the same mission. So we were on our missions when Donald Trump was elected. Um, but, you know, kind of the, like the, talk about the aftermath of that. If there was a, like if you felt differently, um, if you felt less safe or more safe, like just kind of talk about like what it felt like uh, post Donald Trump's election. Yeah, well, I'll go into um, the mission experience. So it was extremely it was it was just really sad because I remember at that point it was time for me to renew my DACA. My, I'm a DACA recipient, and um, at that time it was I was kind of like in a limbo where either I had to go back to California to renew that or stay in Texas and like wait a longer process for it, while at the same time having to do everything that a missionary does. Mm. And what was extremely difficult about it was um, not to call anybody out, but I had a lot of companions who in that sense, we're extremely ignorant or just not sensitive about that situation and completely ignoring that the comments they were saying were directed to me. Mm. Um, So there was a lot of fear at that time. I remember a lot of um, people who were wanting to get baptized were fearful of signing like baptismal forms or anything. Mm. What am I signing or not opening the doors? And, um, Along with that, every week getting an email from my mom and dad being like, hey, things are scary. Like, if anything happens, what's our plan? Like, what are we doing? Where are we going to meet? So that was just like right in the middle of it. And then I got home. When I got home, I went back to the Bay Area. um, And I remember just the interesting thing that a lot of people don't think about with the immigrant community, especially those who are undocumented still, is that we're always 
just constantly in a state of limbo, um, not knowing like if we're going to be able to stay here or when we'll be deported or when DACA ends or any of that. Like, it's just that constant state of like the unknown, but you'd keep doing things to keep bettering yourself. So at that point, I went back to school, went back to BYU and BYU was no better, unfortunately. Like while there, I would see everyone with their Make America Great Again hats. And um, just, I remember there was one time people would go around posting stickers on like poles outside, like light lamp posts, where they were like, immigrants are going to hell or different things that were comments like that, where I'm walking on this campus, um, expecting hopefully like all the promises that come with BYU just not being there for me and feeling like an outcast most of the time and sadly feeling unsafe. Um, a lot of that came with the legal side of it, but then like Rachel was mentioning, a lot of people showed their true colors when that mm-hmm. happened. Because I remember people coming up to me and speaking Spanish and being like, I serve my mission in Mexico. So like, let me practice with you. Um, or even as simple as like being like, oh, are you like, there was in one class where someone was wearing their Make America Great hat and um, someone commented on it and I chuckled because I was like, that's funny because you, whatever, I just chuckled. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I remember this girl like whispered to me, she's like, did you laugh because you're like, illegal? And I remember being like, oh, like interesting. Like you felt comfortable to say that to me in, in a class with one out of two people of color. So um, there was a lot of that like climate that was created where a lot of people don't realize that the comments he was saying weren't just political, but they were affecting real people's lives. Mm. Um, And it was really hard. It was a hard time. And I definitely still see a lot of the aftermath of the Trump era here in Utah. Um, We have some experiences we can share about that, but it's yeah, it's been it's not fun. Yeah. What about you, Gil? How is it for you? Just because you were coming from a very, very different space, right? Like, yeah. I mean, I was here. I was present. I was mm. when the Trump presidency and the election yeah. and all that was going on. And I worked in the probably the most Republican place you could ever work was a gun place. I worked. Oh, there. my God. <laughs> yeah. no. in oh, Utah. Man. You were signing yourself up for something there. I'm sorry. Well, that's crazy. But no, I'm just, I'm Guns, God, and Trump. <laughs> oh, man. Talk about exposure therapy. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Wow. But no, so I was working there. And I remember the night before the election, uh, it was obviously Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And it was funny because, like, me as a Latino, I was like, I was fearful that Trump was going to win. I was fearful. I was like, oh, my gosh, like, this is going to happen. My family, my nephews, my cousins, my aunts, you know, like, my grandparents, are they able going to be, like, to renew their visas to come visit us, this and this? And then people on the Republican side who I was working with, they'd be like, oh, you know, I almost swore. (laughs) But this is is how that bitch is going to win. (laughs) <laughs> they would say that they'd, they'd be fearful and in my head i'm just like i hope she does you know like i hope she does because what country that's not run by a woman is not successful you know and yeah. right now i'm kind of glad that kind of off topic but mexico's you know their two leading people are two women yeah. so i'm super excited to see mexico thrive oh i didn't know that that's awesome but 
so the night before the election, there was a lot of that fear, you know, and they would be like, what, do you, what are your thoughts, Gil? And I'm just like, honestly, I don't really watch politics. I was watching it every time I could. Yeah. I was like, I don't watch politics just because I knew that there, it was an argument waiting to happen. And mm-hmm. I don't want to in that position because I was a new hire and because, you know, they had seniority and they were definitely older men, you know? And I was like this 18 year old who was just looking at a job. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, the night after it, so obviously I went home and everybody, you know, that election was like everyone's eyes were on that, on that election. Mm-hmm. And then Trump won. And I just remember that feeling sick, like feeling nauseous. I almost called off work just because I'm like, this is, yeah. this is life. This is it. Like, mm. man, who we're going to trust after he totally trashed my entire community, my entire country. Like, this is the man who I have to stand behind you know, and say, this is my president. And the next morning I was like, no, I'm not going to let this get to me. Like I'm bigger than this. I'm stronger than this. Go to work. Another thing, because I lived with my parents that they would not allow me not to go to work because <laughs> just go to work. Thing, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Emotional health doesn't matter in a Latino household. You go to work. We're also changing that. <laughs> We're working on that. But I went to work and I remember there was this one guy that got hired like a week before and so he got hired first and then i got hired like a week later and he came up to me and we were working i was actually above him because i was able to perform better than he was and so they put me on top of him to kind of like manage that little team that i I had Mm -hmm. and it was just to like pick parts and he came up to me and he's like just see the election and i'm just like yeah and i always thought that he was like a really cool person that like he's just like oh yeah like las carne asadas like i love mexican culture and I love what you guys stand for, this and this. And then after the election that next morning, he came up to me and like it was like big boy pants. And there's this white man with a beard. And he, he comes up to me and he's like, he's like, you see the election? But kind of more like, did you see it? And I'm like, yeah, I saw it. He's like, what are your thoughts? And I told him, I was like, honestly, I'm a little bit disappointed on the way that America responded to this. Mm. You do. And he's like, Yep. What can you do? Guess you're just gonna have to respect me a little more, huh? Oh. And I was like, I looked at him and I was like, "Excuse me." Me thinking, I'm like, I'm your boss, you know? <laughs> like, oh, that's crazy. Holy then, shit. Yeah. Put that up to HR because I was like, I didn't like that. Yeah. I have a voice. Respect me more. That's just a. That is... I'm sorry. I'm flabbergasted. That is. Wow. <laughs> no. Yeah. I was like, guns. <laughs> like, <laughs> but wow. I took that up to HR. And HR, again, very Republican place, very like, you know, they were they almost threw a barbecue because Trump won, I felt like. Mm-hmm. And they, I took it up to HR and she's like, well, what can you do? Those were just the election polls. You're like, and I'm I not reporting like, that. I'm not, yeah, that's what I said. I was like, I'm not reporting that Trump won. You know, <laughs> I'm like saying like, I'm getting harassed because of my race. Like there is a racist on this team. And she'll, she kind of just kind of like played it off. Like, well, aren't we all here? Like, you know, isn't that why wow. you're here? And so I just kind of left it. I quit, and yeah, I found another job. Wow! My goodness, they said HR at a gun shop is just another type of gun. HR forty five. Look at my HR. Nope, well, I that's, think that's, that's where we we were discussing this earlier. Where um, in PWIs, like predominantly white institutions or places in general. Um, I think that like overt racism isn't necessarily the problem where it's more like microaggressions. Um, And we definitely see that a lot. Like that, 
they're like, well, did he say he hates you for being Mexican? You're like, no, but basically. And so I think that's where a lot of gaslighting comes into um, black and brown people where we're like, hey, like I felt like that was a little off, but now I'm going to gaslight myself because you didn't mean it that way, but you did mean it that way, but I'm wrong. And if I say anything, then I'm the aggressor. Because of our skin tone. Simple as that, because of our skin tone, because of being immigrants, anything like that. It's just... It's really hard to to navigate in a place like that, for sure. Yeah. Kind of like me and Melanie, we share an experience. Yeah. We were on we were on the train because we we obviously we live in Utah County, but we work in Salt Lake. So to save money on gas, we ride the front runner, and we uh, we are both students, so we both have our student pass. And with those student pass, you get free front runner pass. Mm-hmm. Like you can just ride the front runner and the UTA buses as you please for free. And we were on there, we scanned our passes, and for some reason they were not scanning that day. And the day that they're not scanning is the day that there is a person checking for tickets. Mm-hmm. And he, we sit down because we're just like, whatever, they never check tickets either way. So we sit down and we're just going about our morning like normal. And we see that guy and we're just like, oh, well, our school IDs aren't scanning. We'll, we'll see what he says. Mm-hmm. And he's like, tickets, and we're like, oh, we're students. And he's like, okay, let me see your IDs. And so we pull out our IDs and he like goes to scan them on this little thing and they're not scanning, but we knew that. And he, yeah. he was just like, what did he say? Well, even mind you that this man, he's an older white man. And before us, he's scanning everyone's ID, like tickets. And if they, most of them didn't have a ticket and he's like, oh, it's okay. Just download this app, pay for it here. But he gets to us and immediately yeah. it's an aggression. And so we're sitting there and he's like, they're not scanning. They're not scanning. And so we're like, oh, he's like, well, you probably didn't pay your bills. You probably didn't pay what you had to pay. And we're like, no, that's not it. Yeah. Gail even was like, here are my classes. This is what so I'm doing. He was, so he was insinuating you weren't paying like your school fees. Our school yeah, fees. Yeah, that's what he told Because he's like, because I'm like, oh, I don't know why it's not scanning. He's like, oh, maybe around this time, you know, school shuts off the, the school IDs, but they also shut them off if you don't pay your, your classes. Yeah. And I was, in my head, I was like, Bro, my bills are paid. Like what? (laughs) Yeah. And I, he's like, well, maybe you're not even in class. And I pull up my canvas, and I'm like, look, I am in class. Like this is my credit. And he's like, well, maybe you haven't paid your tuition. And just like very up in our faces. And then um, we're like, okay. I tell him, I'm like, okay, where do we pay? Where do we? Like, I'm done with this conversation. He shows us, and then he starts pointing at us, and he's like, I've talked to you before. I've told you this before. And we're like, we've never seen you in our lives. And he's like, no, I've talked to you. I've told you to do this before. And just getting very just like angry at us. And so my comment was like, hey, Gil, let's ignore him. He's talking to us like this because apparently we look like every other brown person. And immediately his demeanor changes. He acts like we assaulted him and walks away from us. And right behind us, there is a couple of guys our age who are white, completely different tone and tells them, hey, like I was telling them, if you haven't paid, no worries. Here's where you pay for it and leaves us. And so again, we're sitting there feeling all these emotions and we're like, did we just experience that or are we gaslighting ourselves? No, and I told yeah. her, I was like, no, this is racial profiling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yes. And, and mind you, anyone who's listening who's from Utah or rides the train, let's be so for real. They do okay. not check. Let's <laughs> be so for real about the, the front runner. They never check, literally never check. And like, if they do, the one time I've been checked out of all the times I've ever ridden it, they were like, oh, whatever. They really didn't care that I uh, 
didn't pay because I didn't pay that time. And so um, that's really crazy because you you are a student. You are able to ride for free. And so that's why it's even more crazy. Like I was clearly like, again, it's just it's just like, let's be honest here. If there's anyone else, this situation will be handled very differently. A hundred percent. And I know you mentioned that you've you've had a few different experiences um, with like microaggressions. Do you want to share more of those? I don't know if they took place at BYU or like at work or just like more experiences. If you could share those, that would be amazing. For sure. Um, BYU was a, an experience of, of itself for sure with that. Um, <laughs> Most would call it. I, yeah, <laughs> well, I definitely want to, to share like any sympathy, empathy and love for anyone listening who is currently at BYU struggling with anything similar like this. Um, it is a very lonely feeling um, going through a pro an institution like that who um, makes so many promises of like belonging and care and nurturing, but really you just feel like you don't belong. So mm. just want to extend that there. But um, just from some of the hardest ones that I feel like other students can connect to, um, I remember it was my second to last semester and I had, um, I was so excited for graduation. I was ready to be done. And um, I had a professor who the very first day of class made us do an assignment where he talked about what our greatest dreams would be. Like anything super realistic or unrealistic, like just write it down. And one of my greatest dreams is to one day buy my parents a home, just provide for them, have them settled and just like show them my gratitude that way. We leave it at that. And um, as it's common at BYU, you start off your lectures with a message or an opening prayer, whatever um, that will help draw the spirit in at that point. But um, that professor was sharing an experience that he had with his family where he started off saying, this is one of the hardest things my family has ever gone through, but we made it through. So I was like expecting something really bad. I'm like, well, let's see what he says. And he pulls up a picture of his family and he says, my daughter and son-in-law were in the process of adoption, starting their family. And they adopted this individual that was really hard for us to accept. And I was like, okay. So then he's like, our family really struggled with this and pulls up the picture. And it's the parents who are both white and this little girl who is black. They're like, this took a lot of us to like redefine how we thought about everything and, and just really learn to love her. So just in that, I'm sitting in that room and the other person of color sits right next to me. We both look at each other and we're like, I don't know if you got that feeling too, but everyone else was like in awe by this story. So I should have known that was the start to a lot of difficult moments with this professor, but um, oh, yeah. it went as far as him um, starting to harass me for a lot of things. Like, again, I bring in the microaggressions because he never came up to me and said, hey, I don't like you because you're brown, but he might as well have said that. I would have right. a little bit more. Um, but he would say things to me, for example, where this girl who looks nothing like me, except that our skin tones were kind of similar, comes up to us and he's like, Hey, I just want to let you both know that I'm so glad that you sit in the same spots every day, because if not, I wouldn't be able to tell you apart. And yeah. so that was that's number one crazy. where we you know what's crazy is that's not the first time that I've heard a variation of that. Like there have been other people who have said similar things happen to them with professors too. That's what yes. it's yeah. it's not fun because yeah. again, you leave that space and you're like, hum, maybe I felt some kind of way where he didn't mean it this way, and it's just a lot of back and forth with yourself. 
um, I had experiences where I'd have other classmates come up to me, one specific came up to me, grabbed my hand and said, hey, can I take a pic? No, she didn't ask, sorry. She took a picture of my hand and she's like, I love your skin color. I'm gonna show my tanning place this skin color so I can get it done. Yeah. Came back the next day looking orange. So I don't know what I look like. But, Hello. But things like that where you you really sit back and you're like, hey, that that didn't sit right. Or one of the hardest experiences I've had in a religious class at BYU was um, sitting there and being told that in the resurrection will all be resurrected perfectly and that we will be white as snow. And so I remember sitting there, another classmate again, one of, of two colored people of color in that class. And we come out and we're like, so what do you think you'll look like when you're white? Because that's just the experience we left. We're like, what, what does that look like for us? We didn't believe it, but I mean, we're being told this by someone who is certified or just got this job to teach us this concept. So a lot of that where, um, Compared to my experience of growing in the Bay Area, nothing like that ever happened. Um, I'll go into it a little bit, but I grew up in every school I went to, again, was predominantly black, brown. The minorities were usually white students. So um, I grew up with a lot of diversity in religion, culture, um, sexual orientation, everything you can think of. I, I just had such a sense of community, even with like the immigrant community, because my family was all out there. Um, my friends, I had a lot of friends who also signed up for DACA at the same time I signed up for it. We were so excited to finally get our licenses or things like that. So then I remember moving to Utah um, and first being told that I was accepted into BYU because I'm Latina, not because of my grades or anything I worked for. So it was, it was a big shift for me that I have worked through to do a lot of healing for that and really find my community and find myself. So. Wow. And I, you know, I just have to say, um, I kind of feel like a clown right now because I always had it in my mind that like Latino people at BYU had it, like they were more accepted. I thought that that was kind of more of the sentiment. Mm-hmm. Hearing from y'all and just kind of like learning more, I'm realizing that's not the case at all. And I'm having to like really shift the way that I think about things because man, like some of these stories, um, even I didn't like have some of those experiences as a black person at BYU. Yeah. these are these are pretty wild so thank you so much for sharing these and just like being vulnerable with that Gil did you have any things that you wanted to share or any more from you Maleni about like those stories so I don't go to BYU so <laughs> no. okay. I attend UBU and their you know their their slogan is come as you are and I love that because you know it makes yeah. it, it does make you feel more welcome and just walking into campus you see you know people from all over the country, just like going to for one purpose only, and it's, it's to get an education, not to have a religion shut down your throat. Yeah. And like even in high school, I feel I would always feel so left out. And like I signed, <laughs> it's funny because I signed up for the class. I was I've never been Mormon, but in high school they have seminary classes. Oh, you said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm crying. I didn't oh, know. Not you were necessarily going to seminary. Oh. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm very much for. <laughs> just like inserting yourself into horrible situations just wants to know. <laughs> i'm there for the experience love it love it but i remember go- i remember feeling so left out that all like my white friends they'd be like oh yeah or like my polynesian friends my mm-hmm. black friends in high school they'd be like oh i have to take seminary this this period so i can't you know i can't take pe with you 
or I can't take computer class with you or health because I, I, I have seminary. Yeah. And I'm like, well, shit, I want to have seminary, you know? <laughs> and I remember I signed up for it and my counselor didn't say anything about it. Like he didn't say like, you've never been Oh, they're seminary. promoting that. They're like, we got you. Yeah. yeah. And so he was like, sign you up, sign me up. I went. I remember it was like the first day of classes and I went and I remember that I was like, well, why isn't seminary like in the high school? We had to walk to a church. I was not, that wasn't that far, but no, yeah. I walked to a church and I was like, okay. I was like, this is already, I'm already getting an off feeling. I'm not Mormon, you know, why am I not inside a Mormon church? It just doesn't feel right. And so I walked in and I sat down and there's already like a book of Mormon just like wait, waiting for me. And I was like, I'm dead. Wait a minute. You know, <laughs> and then the teacher walks in and he's like, "Okay, let's start with a prayer." And I'm like, "I'm out." <laughs> oh, so I up and I walked out, and the teacher, like after they were done praying, because I just sat in the hallway, I was like, "What am I doing here? What did I sign up for?" And he's like, "Hey, are you not? Are, what's wrong? Was the prayer wrong, or like, or do you feel uncomfortable? Like, would you rather sit next to, you know, this person?" And they said their name, and it was a person of color, and I'm just mm. like. No, I think it's just that I'm not Mormon is what I told Right. Them. Oh, why did you sign up? And I'm like, let it be fun. <laughs> so, but, yeah, so. You're so wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny to me that you thought um, seminary was going to be fun, but sorry. <laughs> right, because it was like. People All were, your friends were doing yeah, it. Yeah, so. they were talking about right. like, book club. So I'm like. <laughs> it is a book club. I'm trying to read a book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But the book is the the Book of Mormon, the document. <laughs> oh man! Yeah. Cool. So with that, so you know, kind of talking about your college experience, talk about like what it, um, what was it like for you when you found out about the DACA program? Um, like, did it? What concerns did the DACA program resolve? What concerns did it not resolve? Um, and then how has it been? Just kind of like being in that process, you briefly touched on it on your mission, which was also something that was eye-opening to me is like, for me, um, you know, I experienced some racism and stuff like that on my mission, but for the most part, all I had to worry about was being a missionary. So like for you to have that additional layer of things, um, that was eye-opening to me. But yeah, if you could just talk more about DACA, what it was like and all of that. For sure. So um, growing up, uh, like in a lot of Latino households, my education was my parents' priority. Um, they, they were like, hey, I could do anything crazy as long as I didn't come home with a B, then we're good. They're like, no, you have to pass all these classes, sign up for the best classes. But there came a point where I think I was 16 years old, actually 15, all my friends were getting their driving permits, getting the first jobs, um, thinking about college. And I'm like, hey, like, I, I was so completely like out of it at that point where I didn't know that I couldn't do those things. Um, I remember my mom always telling me, she's like, hey, um, there, there'll be a way that's provided. There's always a way. We're always going to find a way for you. One day you'll have a license. Simple thing like that. One day you'll be able to work. Um, but the biggest fear I had was like, hey, I'm literally not going to be able to go to school. Like there's no way I can one afford it. There's no financial aid for undocumented um, people or even like DACA students don't have a ton of like resources. But even then that was a step forward. So when um, the... Obama administration announced DACA or just the DREAM Act. I remember being, it was one of the most like exciting things that I could finally fit in and do what everyone else had been doing for the past three years. So um, we did a lot of research on it because obviously there's that fear of providing all of your information and then they know that you're here. Yeah. 
you're just exposed fully. But that's a risk that dreamers take specifically because we just want the opportunity to be here in the place that we've grown up in since mm -hmm. we were living. So I remember signing up for it. Immediately after I signed up, um, I went, took my permit test, got my license and started applying for jobs. And I remember just being like, I am an adult. I'm a grown up. Like I can do this. And what happens often that I've heard a lot within the um, immigrant community is that you wait so long for a piece of paper that just shows you that you can continue to do what you've already been doing. Um, and that's a really hard realization because you're like, I'm still myself. I just had to prove that I'm good enough for you. Um, and so then I start school and um, that DACA I think has been the biggest like help for me in the sense that like I've been able to get an education. But even now um, with DACA, right now I'm, I'm actually in my master's program. I'm My goal is to be a therapist specifically for those who've experienced racial trauma. Um, love so it, love here it. and I can start taking people in, but um, I just, I see that like the lack of resources there are for the dream, the dreamer community or the DACA community, they're so limited that it's it's so unfair and it's so sad because like we we've been here not just like as dreamers or people here but our indigenous ancestors have been here for thousands and thousands and since forever of years and there's always that sense of having to prove that we belong in a place that we've actually never left so mm -hmm. that's been i think the the most interesting experience with that but again i'm really grateful for for daca and and I hope that at some point, I think the limitations with it is just like not being able to leave the country has mm -hmm. been really hard. Um, back in 2020, my my grandpa passed away, unfortunately. And I saw how that took a toll one on my my dad and my parents. And then on, on me, where I was like, we can't even go see him while he's yeah. sick. We can't see him while he where he gets buried. Um, and we're just looking forward to do that at some point. But there's a lot of, of loss with... Um, not being able to have a legal status here. Yeah. yeah absolutely. It's very hard because it's like, it's true. We've been here, like our ancestors have been here for so many years. And there's a saying, I can't, I can't remember where exactly where I heard it, but it's like, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. Yep. Yeah. It's like we were just con like colonized mm -hmm. to be into like the American way, which wasn't even their way. You know, they kind of just like stole from here and there make it their own way but yeah like i i see like my grandma passed away not too long ago as well and she was in mexico but i was luckily I'm privileged enough to be yeah. able to travel to mexico to see to see her when she was sick she was able to travel to us before she got sick mm -hmm. my mom doesn't have that privilege you know she's working on it for years has spent thousands and thousands of dollars on this process that you sit down at a desk and some American, you know, that's right or die for America gets to choose whether you, to say, yes, welcome to our country or no, and go back to yours. Because I saw the toll that it took on my mom not being able to see her mom while she was sick. You know, everything was over FaceTime. Luckily, we live in an era now that FaceTime is available. And like yeah. Skype and that because all of her all of her funeral and everything was just through a screen for my mom you know and I almost felt 
I almost felt bad being there, but I know that's what my mom wanted us to do because she couldn't be there. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. felt bad because it's like this this should be my mom. My mom should be the one holding this casket. My mom should be the one yeah. lighting this candle. Yeah. Because of a little piece of paper that says, no, you can't go back to your country and come back into ours. She's not able to do that. My mom is an entrepreneur. She's a very successful businesswoman. Mm-hmm. She helps the economy. She creates jobs here in America. And she has her permission to work here and pay taxes and has been paying taxes. Mm-hmm but the United States still just doesn't see her as a person because of the mistake that she made. Yeah. Very different. I mean, to me, this is what we mean by like, these are issues affecting real people, real lives. Like this isn't just, you know, a policy that's on a piece of paper. Like this is impacting how people are experiencing, experiencing the human experience. You know, like I just lost a parent two months ago and I cannot imagine if I wouldn't be allowed to be there, you know, because of a piece of paper that says I can or can't fly to a country, mm-hmm. you know, and it's your it's, own country. You're right. You where you're from. And mm-hmm. it's just sad to think that there's so much hate in people's heart. You know, I think about the civil rights movement and what that mm-hmm. hate allowed people to do. And um, obviously immigration is a separate issue, but the same idea of like hate is so strong and people fear what they don't know or understand so much that they're willing to um, dehumanize and devalue people um, and not allow them to experience being a person because of um, what they don't know. And um, again, it is, it's just very sad. And I, I empathize and sympathize with your mother just based on how that experience myself um, losing a parent is one of the hardest experiences anyone can ever go through and not being able to at least like go to their funeral and grieve that in the, the proper way. Um, I can't imagine what that was like. And I don't know, that's just a small example of the impact of what as one of the many impacts that the lack of support, the immigration has the lack of resources, the lack of availability that exists in the United States, that it doesn't need to be like this. Um, Things can be changed and things can be different, but people choose ignorance, people choose bigotry, people choose exclusion when this isn't even their country to begin with. And even like adding some like an education point for anyone listening, I've I've heard this comment, which it does come off as ignorant, where it's anyone who says like, if you come in the right way, it's done right. And then you're set. Um, I want people to understand that immigration processes are one extremely long processes to go through, hundreds of pages of paperwork, but the hardest part is how expensive it is and Mm. what of an emotional toll it takes on a person because it's a lot of vulnerability. It's exposing everything about yourself to prove that you you have the right to go. So I think there's this idea that like the United States is like open arms and anyone who does it the right way can come in, but they need to understand that like people who are trying to come into this country often don't have the resources either with attorneys or like financially or any of those that can provide them the opportunity to come here. And we come here sadly because we had to leave behind our culture and our home in order to survive in a different country. And that's, that's a hard thing. So there's really no right way of doing it unless you have the privilege to from the beginning afford all those processes. Um, and 
I think that's just a stereotype that needs to really change or a mindset that needs to change because I mean, I've, I've been going through this process since I was two years old and I'm 26 mm. now. So that's 24 years in the immigration process. Mm. And for a lot of people in this process, they, they spend 30, 40, 50 years until they can say like, Hey, I can go back to my hometown or just completely give up on them. Yep. It's true. So to kind of wrap up, um, what are what would you guys want to say to you know citizens or you know non people who who aren't immigrants? What are the ways that they can support you as individuals or immigrants as individuals or just causes? Like, what would you want to see um, and advise people to do? Um, first, I would like to give a shout out to any immigrant families, parents, kids that are going through this. want to tell my parents, like, I know they'll be listening to this, but telling them, like, how grateful I am for their sacrifices and, like, how motivating that is for me to continue through this, like, just, like, this process of, like, education and building a life here because of them. But that shout-out specifically goes out to those immigrant parents and families to let them know that it's worth it and that there are so many resources out there and communities to support you um, and to look out for those. And for citizens of the U.S., I just really, an invitation I always ask in any con, like topic like this is just educate yourself. Mm-hmm. Like take a moment to, um, and not not to go up to a friend and be like, hey, tell me everything about your process. Like don't create a token person out of them, but like really look for resources, organizations, books, anything you can find that will educate you on the topic about what people are going through. And don't wait until someone in your life is going through it to care about it, but like focus on it way before so that when someone does come into your life and you can be that form of support for them, you can help them out at that point too. Going along with that, it's like, yeah, it's definitely a process to go through. And, you know, to all La Raza that's listening out there, like, si se puede. And we're going to get through it. And life is hard. Life is hard. And a quote that a quote that comes to mind a lot when talking about these issues about like being an American and being Mexican is from the movie, the original Selena. Yeah. When the dad, mm-hmm. when they're driving in the car and the dad says, you know, it, it's hard. It's hard to be a Mexican American because you have to be more Mexican than the Mexicans and more American than the Americans. Yeah. You know, you have to have, you have to live two different cultures and know them both so well. And it's, it's hard to get that across uh, sometimes, but you know, mm-hmm. there's so many resources out there. There's so many people that are willing to help. Or even if, like, you know somebody who's gone through a, a specific process, like, they may have, you know, the highlights that they could give you or, like, little mm-hmm. tips and, t- and tricks on how to go through the process a little bit easier. So definitely reaching out to the Latino community. You know, if you're a high school student or junior high school, uh, yeah, junior high student right now and you're a Latino, something that really helped me connect to my roots and really like put me in my Latino community and made me realize that I wasn't the only one there is a program called Latinos in Action. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. Jose Enriquez, he, he put all this together and it's a really amazing community to be in that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing. This has been a, uh, a very sobering and educational episode for Mm -hmm. me. I'm very grateful to y'all for for just being willing to share your stories, to talk about your experience as immigrants, as DACA recipients, all of that. I've learned a lot, so I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
My thank lady, you. Jill, for coming on the podcast. Yes, Jill. thank you so much. We're just very grateful and um, appreciate your vulnerability just because this isn't always easy. And this is um, hard, something hard to share about, right? Like, this is scary. And, and we, I just really appreciate you using um, your voice to talk about something that's really important and there needs to be more um, emphasis and, and support around this. So again, just thank you so much. Thank you for thank you the opportunity. We appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. But before we go, we got one last thing. We got to do recommendations. So yes. We got things to recommend this week. Rachel, you want to go first? Yes, I can. Right. So mine is a little more serious just based on our um, conversation today. It's reminding me of a lot of things that I studied in sociology that allowed me to kind of be aware of issues affecting the immigrant community. And so I just, my recommendation is to just go look up all the immigration acts that have been passed mm -hmm. um, in the 1990s, pretty much prior to 2000 and uh, really 2002, 2000, the year 2000, just because that's impacted so many things like the Immigration Act of 1926, Immigration Act of 1965, um, and the Immigration Act um, that was passed in 1990, just understanding how, you know, race impacted it, what was viewed as a, understanding how the, the idea of what was viewed as American shifted over time um, is really important in understanding how like the immigration, the, the United States like limited the amount of people that could come in, which also made it more hyper-selective for who could really come like the right way or the way that people encourage. And so just understanding all that helps you to be a more informed citizen and to understand like how you can actually continue to work towards progress. Cause I feel like people who actually understand everything that's happened in the um, in United States immigration process are the most um, open and like liberal with your ideas because you understand how fucked up it's been. Sorry. Um, that was a very vulgar word, but I'm just saying, like, that's the best way to describe it. Like, you understand how messed up it's been, how racialized it's been, and how problematic it is. And so, you don't have a view of, like, oh, do it the right way because there is no right way because America has changed what that's looked like constantly. Um, and so, that's what I, my recommendation is is literally just going to read those things, watching short YouTube or TikTok videos about it because it'll make you be aware to understand why. Um, the immigration system is where it's at and understanding like actually looking at the demographics of immigrant populations um because i think it will surprise people the narrative that has been spun in politics versus like what the numbers actually look like and where immigrant groups large groups are coming from um and understanding the difference between hyper and hypo selectivity i'll stop there beautiful mm -hmm. nate yeah for me mine is not as uh as intelligent <laughs> or educational um, in my spare time or really time that I should be working. I like to watch uh, bad movies or just like low budget movies. Um, and every once in a while you find a hidden gem. I watched this movie called Parallel. It came out in 2018. And basically it's about this group of friends that like find a mirror that allows them to like travel into different dimensions. Um, but it's like, it, it's basically kind of like a multiverse idea where like, the same version of them exists in another dimension, but it, like things are like slightly different. Mm. Um, but it's like a really interesting take on it, and uh, I enjoyed it. So it's called Parallel. It's on Amazon Prime for free, um, Amazon Prime Video. 
So if you get a chance to go watch it, I, I check that one out. It's a pretty good one. That's my recommendation. Millennium Gill, what would y'all recommend this week? Yeah, um, this is a book I always recommend. It's um, very validating for anyone going through experiences that we've discussed today. Um, the author's name is Prisca Dorcas Mojica Rodriguez. So I can, we can write that out if you need to, but yes, the book we'll called, put that in there. Yeah, I got you. The book is called For Brown Girls with Tender, with Sharp Edges and Tender Hearts. Um, it's a very validating book. So I guess my recommendation is the book into just any hard, like, experiences you're going through right now, like, validate yourself. Know that you're going through it and that you're not gaslighting anything that you're going through, but really find those resources that'll help out. And I think that's an amazing book to start that validation. And you say it's called For Brown Girls with Broken Hearts? With tender, uh, with sharp edges and tender hearts. Oh, okay. For, yeah, see, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna put this on my list. It's beautiful. I think you'd love it. And we'll be sure to include it in the uh, the show notes that if people want to, they can, they can look it up as well. Um, Gil? Gilberto. <laughs> um, let's go. Cool. <laughs> he, he said, don't call me that. He's like, fix your face, fix your mouth. Sorry. Yo, what you got? I'm corrected. <laughs> no, for real. No, I'm joking. Um, my recommendation would be uh, get involved. Get involved. Look up when your next rally for immigration is because you're going to meet so many people with so many passion like so much passion and so much things to share so get involved in your community go to those rallies go to those marches you know see what bills are going to be passed that could affect your latino friend yeah um and this being you know not just mexican friend but venezuelan guatemalan any like central america south america uh southern america you know get involved in all these things because we can talk and talk and talk about everything that's wrong in the United States. But if we're not doing anything and we're not being active about it, what's the point? Yeah. So definitely get involved. So I know that, um, what's the program? Immigration, immigrants of Utah. I know they have a lot of rallies that they're planning and stuff like that. So that's just something here in Utah, you know, that you can get involved with, but I'm sure there's plenty of different, there's immigrants all over the United States. It doesn't necessarily have to be for Latinos. It could be, for Asians or Pacific Islanders, just anywhere, you know, there's immigrants all around. So just get involved and have our voices heard. We heard, we have a voice, let's make it heard. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's the perfect way to close it out. Yeah. Thank you guys. Well, actually what we're gonna do, Gil, we're gonna end with a prayer. You should be good because you're sitting next to Maleni, so you're comfortable, oh, right? You're good. Yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> <Your> tattoo. <laughs> oh man. Cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank y'all so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Learned a lot today. We're very grateful to y'all. Thank you. I appreciate you having us. Thank you so much. Cool. Rachel, you got anything else? Nope. That's it. Thank you. Well, you know what? Hold on. I do have other things. Sorry. I forgot. We got to start saying closing remarks at the end, right? Um, so a few things. If there are stories that you want us to share or people that you want us to interview, be sure to drop us an email at blackmenacespodcast at gmail.com. Or you can just like send us a DM or a message on uh, Instagram. Um, also, be sure to follow us on all platforms. It's just at Black Menaces on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, 
And then the Black Menaces on YouTube is where we post um, like video episodes of the podcast and then other uh, fun content. We've got a lot of good stuff coming on the way. We want to get more into like the educational realm. So be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. Smash that like button. Um, <laughs> And then please uh, be sure to support us as well. Like we've been doing this basically just out of the goodness of our hearts, right? Like we enjoy um, doing Black Menaces and we've, you know, we've been able to do a lot of good and accomplish a lot of things. And uh, a lot of us have activist backgrounds. So this is just kind of in our blood where we, um, you know, we, we do things because we want to see the world become a better place. However, um, it does get kind of tiresome um, when we also have full-time jobs. So if you if you in any way are able to support us, whether it's through a one-time donation or a monthly donation, you can donate to us um, on Venmo, just the Black Menaces, under the business tab. Um, or you can go to our store and you can purchase merch. We have a whole store. We got some T-shirts. The OG Be a Menace T-shirt is up there, along with some hoodies and like a lot of other fun stuff. So if you got birthdays, anniversaries, Christmas is coming up, be sure to get those. And then you can also donate to us at theblackmenaces.org slash donate. I mean, you can do like monthly donations or one-time donations there. Um, but yeah, please support us any way that you're able to. Um, like and subscribe, follow, you know, all, us on all of our different channels. And um, yeah, we, we, we really appreciate it. So thank you. And with that, we will catch y'all next week. Yeah.